I wonder what your expectations are for 2013. I don't know about you, but it's not quite as exciting as this time last year. I mean, we had the Olympics to look forward to. We had a lot to look forward to in 2012. It was the year that everything, all, it seemed that everyone worked towards a budget. Local councils worked towards the end of the, you know, everything's got to be done by the Olympics. And there seemed to be like no world beyond the Olympics. Like you, every, anyone who worked in any business sector, it's like, right, we're going to get everything done. We're going to spend all the money so that when, you know, all the countries around the world are going to be here, they're going to spend all their money, going to see how impressive London is. And nothing existed beyond the Olympics. But 2013, I I've not given much thought to it other than the last few days. It's just come upon us, really. I don't know what your expectations are, whether they're a bit humdrum or average. Maybe they're lower than your expectations were of 2012. Maybe things just aren't going to be as good in 2013. Maybe they're higher. 2013, things are going to be a lot better than they were in 2012. Maybe if you look back this time last year, I wonder if you've asked the questions whether... 2012 met your expectations this time last year or not. Now, I'm an eternal optimist. I'll give you an example of how this works out in our marital life. Uh, I will say I'm going to meet Seuss, my wife, at a certain time by getting there by, through public transport. I work out the time I need to take to get there based on an optimum connection change. So I will, get, I will work out that, for example, to, take, to get to South Kensington, where I used to work, to get to South Kensington, at the best, at the very best, when everything's working, when you get off the train, you can get onto the next one, will take me about 30 minutes. Is that about right, John? 30 minutes? About that. So that means every time I leave the house to go to South Kensington... I will always leave 30 minutes because that's eternally optimistic is how I approach it, is that everything's going to run in my favour. I'm going to get off the tube and change at Euston, get off across the platform and there's going to be a train straight there to get onto the Victoria Line. And same thing at the South Kent, like, it's just going to be so smooth. I work everything out according to the, nothing's going to stop me getting from A to B in the quickest time possible. I don't allow for any other potential hiccups getting the Oyster card, Oyster card's not charged, whatever it might be. Like, I just, that just hasn't come into my brain at all. It's just optimum amount of time. That's, so I'm always, sometimes, I'm a couple of moments later than I said I would be. Seuss, on the other hand, is the reverse. She will plan every possible eventuality that will take a bit longer, that we will inevitably befall some great tragedy on the way to getting to South Kensington, that will stop us for about an hour, and we will get there, therefore, on time, if not early. But then if I'm early, I'm thinking, well, what am I, this, I've all this time to spare. I don't like time to spare. But I'm, a t- I'm an eternal optimist. And each year, I start, I start pretty optimistic as well. New Year's resolutions and all the rest of it. I mean, how many of you have even started drawing up your list of New Year's resolutions? Anyone? No one. You've all given up before you've even begun. No one's drawn up a list of New Year's resolutions. Well, I have one New Year's resolution for this year, is that I'm going to go running. (laughs) Now, you may laugh, and you're right to do so, but I put in the diary in July a 10K run that I have to actually get around. In fact, I'm representing the diocese, so... Church of England's future hangs on me being able to puff my way around 10 kilometers of London. That's, uh, 
that's kind of what I'm... If I have a goal, I, I, I feel like I've got a better than 50% chance of being able to make it round. Like, if I know that... If I, if I just said I'm just going to go running, then I wouldn't get there. But I'm going to go running. That's, that's what I'm going to do. But every new year, it's exactly the same. I have these life goals, you know, let's do this, you know, let's set aside this amount of time, let's, let's go on holiday here, let's do this, let's hope this happens, let's hope this happens in my life. But within two weeks, I've forgotten. I've forgotten that it's actually the beginning of the year, and I've lost all enthusiasm for 2000, whatever it is, 13 this time. And I've completely forgotten all the optimism that I might have had at the beginning. And I don't know about you, but I think it's the same a little bit with church life. That we can slip into the same routine. That there are moments, whether that is at the beginning of a year or a new academic year maybe, or whatever it is, that we have a a new excitement for the life of the church. A new passion. Things are going to be different. Things are going to be more exciting. Things are going to be fill in the gap. But I think very quickly, those similar hopes that we might have had just can slip. We slip into the same routine of showing up at church every Sunday afternoon for you guys and and for us every morning and evening. We just slip into the same routine and we've kind of forgotten those aspirational hopes that we might have had beforehand. We lose any expectation of what church could be like. But I think we're starting with the wrong question. I think we're starting with the wrong question. See, I don't think it is about our expectation of what church is going to be like this year at Revelation or St. Luke's or wherever. See, our first question as we hit 2013, I believe, is not what do we expect of St. Luke's? What do we expect is going to happen in the life of St. Luke's or the life of Revelation? But what do we expect of God this year? What do we expect of God in 2013? Hopefully, one comes out of the other. But our starting question should never be, well, what do we expect of church? But instead, what do we expect of God? What do we expect to see of God in 2013? Do you expect to see God move in your life in the year to come? Do you expect to see God heal someone when you pray for them sometime next year? Do you expect God to speak to you and give insight into someone's life that they didn't even know? And God bothered to tell you about that person. Do you expect God to put you in places in work where no one else will go because it's so difficult and to give you the wisdom that you need to make those difficult decisions? Do you expect God to transform your family life? your marriages, your relationships? Do you expect God to give you supernatural compassion for the people you least expected? Do you expect God to change your mind surprisingly on things that you've been fixed on for years? You see, I just have this basic philosophy that life was never meant to be boring. I kind of live life like that. Some of us, it's easy, it, maybe it's to do with the way that I'm wired or whatever, but I just don't think life was ever meant to be boring. It was never meant to be predictable. 
That doesn't mean that we go taking risks left, right, and center. I mean, being predictable means it is safer, yes. But a journey of faith is exactly that. We speak of being on a journey of faith here at St. Luke's. We speak of that we're all on a journey. Some of us are only just beginning to get a a knowledge and an understanding of who God is. And some of us have been so deeply steeped in our relationship with God that it's second nature to communicate, to hear, and to expect things, uh, to expect him to move. But a journey of faith is exactly that. It's a journey. We should be further on in our faith than we were maybe a year ago. And it's difficult, isn't it, to know how we measure that. How do we measure how far we are on in our journey of faith? I think sometimes we measure it on based on how much knowledge of the Bible we have. Well, I know the order of all the 66 books, thanks very much. Or I know that there are 66 books. And I also know that there are 27 books in the Old Testament and 39 books in the, sorry, 27 in the New Testament, 39 in the Old, and three times nine equals the number of books in the Old Testament. You can work it out, do the maths. And we do it based on kind of really tangible things. And it's difficult to know, isn't it, sometimes, how far on we are. But I think one of the marks of how far along we are in our journey of faith is how expectant we are of God. Are we less expectant than we were? In 2012, did we take a few knocks along the way in terms of our faith that we don't take those risks anymore? But I think it is one of the marks, it's how expectant we are of God. And then after all, it's in his hands one way or another. Whether it is in fact a normal average year or whether it's a life full of roller coasters. You see, crazy risk taking is not a spiritual virtue. God is not calling us to take risks left, right and center. Risk taking is not a spiritual virtue, but obedience is. You see, God's called us to a life of obedience, not of risk-taking, but risk-taking might well be part and parcel of being obedient. When um, Susan and I first moved to Camden, coming up to four years ago, our daughter Kaylee started attending a nursery school and, uh, where she became friends with another little girl called Melody. Melody's mum, Davina, and Seuss became friends because mums become friends at the school gate kind of thing. And as many men in this room will testify, there comes a time when the only friends that you make as men are because you've been introduced by your wives. And so that's how Steph and I first met. We met, firstly, not because we were local church uh, leaders or, or anything like that. We met because our daughters were great friends at school. They happened to be in the same class and they happened to be uh, good friends. And then Seuss and Davina became great friends as a result. Now, I'm sure we would have touched base at some point. We would have gone to certain gatherings at different points and, and met one another. But that, that friendship was accelerated through our daughters and our wives' friendships. And now Steph and I meet regularly and catch up and we pray together and we share a little bit about what's going on in our respective churches. And, and the more that I think that we've learned about our different communities that we're involved in, the privilege of that we've discovered that there are so many similarities. At St. Luke's, we've established these things called, um, these mid-sized communities called hubs, which are about building communities of faith 
with people who are at different stages of that journey of faith, and those groups are orientated around a purpose or an interest. And as a result, we're engaged with many people outside the walls of our church. I thought this was a new idea. Then I discovered you guys have been doing it for ages. And you call it gospel communities. And what's great is that without any prompting from Steph or I or any of the leadership team at Rev or, or at St. Luke's is that these groups have been meeting together and partnering in mission activity in the life of Kentish Town without any prompting. So I know, for example, that Adam, I dragged you up earlier, and, and Hugh have been, uh, and Jane and others have been involved in gathering together the creative side of what we're doing at St. Luke's and what you guys are doing in Rev and partnering in the mission of that. You know, we share so much in common, but you know, I think the greatest thing we have in common is our spiritual heritage. Our spiritual heritage. John Wimber was a major influence on our church, and I know of, uh, uh, of the church, uh, of Revelation Church. And John Wimber, in the 80s and 90s, saw a major move uh, of the Holy Spirit. He saw people being healed, being refreshed. There was an increase in the prophetic. And I know that both Steph and I had amazing encounters with the Holy Spirit, along with many, many others around that time. And what's been clear is it was never about the manifestation, the physical experience, if you like, of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit birthed an incredible move of God that we are now seeing the fruit of. The Alpha Course, as many of you will have experienced or know about, was only one or two courses in the early 90s and is now in its thousands of courses across the world in many different languages. Accelerated because the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at that point in time. Soul Survivor, the biggest youth movement in the country, is now seeing twenty to 30,000 people come to their conferences a year. Started as a youth group in the leafy suburbs of uh, Chorleywood. Again, at that time, it started. There's an increase in church planting, which again, we're be- beginning to see the fruit of. The Spirit of God being outpoured is about a mission, and a mission at stake in all of our lives. It was never about to be kept within the walls of the church. And it's our heritage at St. Luke's that we share in. We're engaged in mission in hubs and and engaged in mission in, in gospel communities and we need the spirit of God. The spirit is the catalyst of new life. And I wanted to set that up and hand over to Steph because I wanted Steph to share a little bit uh, from this uh, passage from Galatians. Over to you. I remember hearing a story about Nicky Gumbel. He was at a, uh, a John Wimber meeting many years ago, and God just came on him in a, in a very powerful way and quite an embarrassingly overt way. I think they had to carry him out of the meeting because he was just kind of shouting. I mean, just God came. And as he's being carried out, apparently John Wimber just said something like this, that's for evangelism. And you look back now at the Alpha Course and stuff, and you just think, sometimes God does these things that are a bit unusual, a bit extraordinary, and you can be left scratching your head thinking, why would God do that? Why would God touch someone and, and even it be a bit messy or a bit, a bit strange? But it's some, it's, it's, that's not the big deal. The big deal is that God is touching someone's heart, someone's life. God is anointing someone for something 
powerful and fruitful. And um, that story stuck with me because I think it's one of those ones you can look back on and you see the moment where the spirit moved, which looks a bit odd. But then you see the fruit and you think, if, it's, if it means that, I'm in. Because that's what it's about. And um, me and John, we've just been meeting over coffee lately and just getting sort of fired up, talking about our own encounters with the Holy Spirit over the years. And really, to be honest, how everything good in us and in our lives and in our ministries comes, comes back to those things. It's not that we're particularly clever or well thought through or, um, you know, I don't know. We, we, we know God has touched our hearts. We've never been the same since there's a fire in our spirit that we've not, you know, that's not been put out. And we just hunger for that for our churches. We just long for the churches that we serve to know the presence and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. If at times that involves shaking and falling over, no big deal one way or the other. That's not the point. It's not the point. It's secondary. When there is a move of the Holy Spirit, an authentic move of God, it always leads to certain things that are really important, like assurance. People know I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God. That spirit of adoption, crying out, Abba Father. Boldness. The ability to be able to speak about Jesus, unafraid, unashamed. That's supernatural. The fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives, love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Don't you want to be that person? The gifts of the Holy Spirit. Being supernaturally enabled to do things that you couldn't otherwise do. I long for that for Revelation Church. John longs for that for St. Luke's. Jesus longs for that for his church. And we can't... We can't manipulate or make God do certain things. God does what God does. But we know from the Bible that it is absolutely his desire in these days to pour out his spirit on all people. He has made that clear. We're not in any confusion over what's in the heart of God. It is to pour out his Holy Spirit. And so along those lines, I guess it's just good for us to know how best then or how do we receive the Holy Spirit? How does this thing work? So we're going to use this passage from Galatians, just going to take you through it verse by verse, and then we're going to be, open our hearts um, to the Lord for him to touch us, for him to touch us freshly. The book of Galatians is an interesting book. The reason why this letter was written was because Paul had planted a church, in, well, a number of churches in the region called Galatia, and then had moved on. Once he'd moved on, some Jewish believers arrived into these churches uh, that were made up mostly of Gentiles, they weren't Jews, and they began, these Jewish believers began saying, you can't, you can't really be saved without being circumcised and without living under the Jewish law. It's not going, you're not fully saved, you need to become a Jew in order to be fully saved. And then Paul got wind of this, and he writes this letter addressing the situation where the Galatians have fundamentally started to try and add to the work of Jesus. Which is why we started with this verse where Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification or righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you begin to add anything to the work of Jesus, 
anything to the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God given to us in Jesus. If you begin to add anything to that, to try and make yourself feel like you're right with God, then what you are fundamentally doing is looking at the cross, the crucifixion, and saying that was in vain. There was no purpose in that. Or it was in some way insufficient. Or it happened, but it didn't quite do the job. Where the whole time we have the words of Jesus ringing in our ears. It is finished. It is completed. I have done it. As soon as we move away from that, as soon as we begin to try to lean on our own righteousness, whether it's circumcision and dietary laws, or something probably a bit more likely for us, which could be, have I prayed enough? Or am I this or that enough? Or is my background holy enough? As soon as we begin to rely on anything that's about me, we nullify the grace of God. The crucifixion. That moment in history where... God submits to death in order to forgive our sins. We, we say it's not sufficient, it won't do. And this is important when talking about the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is given on the grounds that we have been made right with God. So when you start thinking about, Lord, I want more of your Spirit, I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, the next thought that comes is, well, will God give me His Spirit? Am I right with God? Because the Spirit is the Spirit of sonship, the Spirit of adoption. It's God's way of saying, you're mine, I welcome you, you are right with me. And so the next question is, am I right with God? If at that point you start thinking, have I prayed enough? Have I eaten the right foods? Is my background okay? Then what you're starting to do is say, I am going to try and make my own self right with God. Whereas God, the Bible says, no, through Christ's death, we are right with God. Therefore, on the grounds of the crucifixion of Jesus, I've been made right with God. I trust in that. And I've been made right with God through that trust, through that faith. And now God will pour out his spirit on me. Which is why Paul goes on and he says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. What strong language. Foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Who's put a hex on you? Who's put a spell on you? It's kind of like he's saying, something. this is something that's gone on, a, a real delusional, uh, it, it has a delusional impact on you spiritually. You've missed it. I, I portrayed Christ crucified to you in my preaching, and now you've moved away from it. It's, it's strong, strong language. It's not just, well, they got it a bit wrong. Who's bewitched you? Paul feels strongly about it. He feels strongly about it because the devil will do everything he can to remove our gaze from Christ and get us onto others, comparing, or ourselves. Whereas God is constantly saying, behold my son. Behold my son. He is enough. He is enough for you. And then he asks them this question. He wants to get back to their initial, their initial point where they received the Spirit. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He's taken them back to their conversion and he's saying, how did that happen? How did your conversion happen? Was it that you had to do certain things or was it that I preached the gospel, you believed and God changed your life? Paul knows the answer, and they, knows it. they know the answer. He's pulling them back to it. And I want to ask you today, how did you first come to know Christ? Was it because you did some stuff? 
Was it, was it that you did certain things and then suddenly, oh, now I know Christ? Or did someone tell you about Jesus and you said, yes, please? <laughs> I want him. I need, you, you, you knew, I need this forgiveness. I need this cleansing. I need this new life. And you came as you were. And you asked for forgiveness. Whether you were three years old sitting on your bed with your mom, or whether you were 33 years old in a right old state, you, that point came where you said, you asked for forgiveness. And you said, Jesus, I want to make you Lord. I want to follow you. And in that moment, whether really dramatically or whether it's something just started that has grown and grown and grown, you became brand new. Anyone, anyone testify to that? Anyone say yes? And what, was it a simple thing? Or did you have to do this, that and the other? Was it like, okay, we're going to cut out the pork. I'm going to do this and various. And then who knows? No. What, what, what was it? It's been done. Come to Christ. God gave you his spirit in that. And Paul's bringing them back there. And the reason he's bringing them back is because it's really important to remember that when you think about, okay, well, if I receive the spirit then, how, how am I going to go on receiving the spirit? Because he asks them another question, but this time in the present tense. He's not looking back. He says in verse 5 now, he says, does he who supplies the Spirit. So now he's talking about the ongoing supply of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? What he's saying is this. You know how it started? That's how it continues doesn't change. It doesn't get complicated. It's not that suddenly you sort of, oh yeah, well that was in the, in the old days and it was simple then and kind of God understood. But now it's complicated because you're mature. No. There is something simple about maturity. True Christian maturity understands that's how it started. That's how it's going to continue. It's a bit like, it's not a perfect illustration, but you know the phrase beginner's luck? You ever had a go at something for the first time and just been amazing at it? You ever done that? You see someone with a bow and arrow, you think, I'll have a go. And you do it and you get like nearly bullseye. And you're like, I'm amazing. And then 10 goes later, you are useless. Yeah? You're just like, you're all over the place. And then, you have to, and then it's the work of learning the technique. I think sometimes we approach it a bit like that. Well, it's like, yeah, but that, that, I've received the spirit initially then because, you know, God understood I was, you know, I was just this kind of wreck and I just really needed him. So we just came. But now well, I've developed. I, I know how it works now. I'm spiritual now. No. We are just as needy today as on day one. We approach him on the same grounds. We must never become professional religious people. That is terrible. That is death. We come as children. We come expectant. He's our father, our Abba, father, our daddy, God, who gave us the spirit when we were absolutely lost in darkness. How much more would he go on giving his spirit to his children? That's the logic. It's not complicated. We mustn't complicate it. Which finishes us off on the key, which is verse 3. Are you so foolish? I'm going to ask you this question now. Forgive me. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
Are you that foolish? Are you going to move away from that place of simplicity, neediness, letting God be your all in all? Are you going to move from that to some other thing where it's just very complicated and all about what you do and the focus gets very natural and it's about just about learning techniques, skills, formulas? Or are you going to let it stay raw and full of the life of God? That's the question I want to ask you and kind of leave you with before we move into our time of prayer and receiving God. The grace of God we must never nullify. Here's what the grace of God means. It's outrageous. It means that the favor you enjoy from God is completely unearned. I'm going to say it again. The favor you enjoy from God is completely unearned. He has looked on you with favor. He has brought you out, out of his desire to have you, to love you, to lavish kindness on you for eternity. See the heart of God. See the heart of God. See it. Understand it. Get it. He, this is why lots of Jesus' teaching is about undermining this strange idea as to the stinginess of God or something like he, he talks to. He talks to parents and says, you know how to give good gifts to your children. You're evil. <laughs> how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? How much more? He is so generous. He is so full for us. That's why we call it the gospel. It's good news. It remains good news. It's not that it was good news. Now it's kind of okay, you know. But No, it's the good news. Everything we have, we have by the grace and the gift of God. I want to encourage us as we pray in a moment to take God at his word. Just take his naked promise that he's going to grant you the spirit. That the spirit is given to all flesh. That we might live for Jesus. It's not just some vague thing, some nice experience. We are the Holy Spirit, the third person of God. He is a person. We welcome him. As we pray in just a moment, it's not about looking for an experience. It's about drawing near to God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That is the promise. So I want us to just draw near, thank God for his grace and get back to first principles. He is enough for us and more than enough for us. Amen.